0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Walter Olson of the Libertarian Cato Institute. Welcome, one and all. Well, we had a debate this week. They call it a debate. I'm not sure that's accurate. It's something of a show. I wrote a piece today suggesting that it's the perfect environment in which demagogues can flourish and serious politicians are at a disadvantage. But let us begin with you, Bill Galston. Do you think that this has done anything for any of the participants, good or bad?
1: Some, but I'm sure not as much on the upside as a lot of the candidates were hoping. As I wrote in a piece for Brookings that I co-authored with Elaine Mark. The candidate who I think performed the best by a considerable margin was Nikki Haley, who hasn't gotten much of a hearing lately, but I suspect if anybody was paying attention, will get more of a hearing. By contrast, uh, Tim Scott, who has a lot of upside potential, I think played it so safe that he virtually disappeared. DeSantis was less egregious than usual. But as a result of that, he didn't really stand out all that much. He may have stopped the bleeding. I'm not sure. But if you ask me, did he put his campaign back on an upward curve, I would have to say no. Pence did a very good job of appearing for the most part to be the adult in the room. But I suspected as the debate was going on and was confirmed after the debate ended by a CNN focus group that he made no new friends. He will not be forgiven for doing the right thing on January 6th. And now for the alleged star of the show, Mr. Ramaswamy. He is a very intelligent, well-educated and accomplished young man. He's also an arrogant overcaffeinated class a jerk if he you know embarks now on a meteoric rise among the republican primary electorate it will tell me that that electorate is even more degraded than i thought it was and you know even less interested in whether or not someone has any visible qualifications whatsoever for the highest office in the land, or whether they're looking for someone for shock value. And I think a lot of people clearly are looking for that. I recognize Ramaswamy's brand. I've met a lot of young men just like him at national conservatism conferences. They hate liberals, but they have nothing but contempt for older conservatives. They think history begins with them, and that, to quote the end of the first act of uh, cabaret, the future belongs to us. God help us if they're right.
0: Walter Olson, our friend Pete Wehner, uh, who was on this podcast just last week, described Ramaswami as young, glib, shallow, and cynical, which is uh, good for adjectives, I think. I could add many more. I had a visceral disgust. Watching him, first of all, the fact that he wants to give Ukraine to Putin and his toying with conspiracy theories and the rest of it. But also, he makes these broad statements like, I am going to eliminate the Department of Education and abolish the teachers' unions. And he says these sorts of things that nobody follows up and says, Well, under what authority would you propose to do that as president? I hate to get sidetracked into Ramaswamy, Wally, but honestly, he was a big part of the story last night. And Bill's right that if the Republican Party rallies to him as the new second most popular candidate, it will tell us a great deal. According to a CNN focus group, he was the declared winner. Your take?
2: Well, I think you're right to focus on it because he was the candidate who moved most, partly because he was still not a known quantity to a lot of viewers. And I had much the same reaction as you did. I was thrown Back at the very end, when he launched into what sounded like a kind of pre recorded things he liked thing. And he mentioned the U.S. Constitution because, of course, his earlier remarks put him in the candidate block that did not talk about it or even seem to understand the Constitution. And I do believe it's fruitful to go at it from this direction. You had, of the eight candidates, you had. Governor Bergam actually pull out his Cato pocket constitution. I'm always so proud when that happens, (laughs) being from Cato. Uh, But you had, in their various ways, you had Pence and Christie and Hutchinson making a big deal of the constitution, the fact that you take an oath to defend it, the fact that Pence was put to that oath and passed. And, you know, I won't say... Haley and Scott spoke as much about it, but they still seemed very familiar with what the things are. Trump, as we know, and I pointed this out when he gave, I think, his first inaugural address, which never mentioned the Constitution. Trump is very unusual in how much he avoids talking about the Constitution. He doesn't cite it even sometimes when it's on his side. DeSantis' rapid response force put out a zinger against Ramaswamy, who, I didn't hear this a bit, but they said that he appeared not to know that the Constitution post-dated American Revolution.
0: That's correct. He said that's what the patriots were fighting for the Constitution.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There you have something symbolic of, of a threat that goes all the way through Ramaswamy's thing, and which you pointed out very well, which is that he can't abolish the teachers' unions. He can't abolish federal agencies in general as president when there are authorizing statutes requiring them to exist. Every other person there on stage understood the practicalities better. If you're going to remove the Department of Education, or more amazing, the Internal Revenue Service, from the organizational chart of the government, that's a different question from how many of its functions. You're just going to have to redistribute to other places. So Ramaswamy glided past, and you know, I too re- recurred the word glib in the way in which he does this. He is used to being a CEO of a tech company who can talk for as long as he wanted in a monologue. And the way he treated the other candidates, saying that they were all bought and paid for, saying that Nikki Haley was just angling for a spot on the Lockheed board, this was as Frank Bruni put it in his New York Times column, it was larval Trump. You can see him yeah. sort of flopping <laughs> the future wings. You can see him, you know, wet, wet and still somewhat sticky as he metamorphoses toward the future thing. I'm really reminded of the lanternfly that we are all told to keep up with. But I'll I'll just stop with this, which is that under there were a couple of somewhat important appeals unique to Ramaswamy. There was kind of a racial one, which I think in some ways he did more effectively than Tim Scott, but there was also one about youth. And I'm going to turn it into a joke by saying that everyone realizes that Trump's brand of immaturity isn't going to be around forever. And we're (laughs) going to need a new standard bearer for immaturity. Why not go with the youngest person?
0: (laughs) Well said. All right. Damon, there were moments at the debate where you would, you know, sort of bury your face in your hands. So for example, the moderators asked, if Trump becomes a convicted felon, will you still support him? Six of the eight people on the stage said yes. And yet there were a number of other kinds of moments too. I thought Pence had a really outstanding night. I thought it was very, very healthy and good for the country and for the party if it has ears to hear. That he said, Trump specifically asked me on January 6th to put himself over the Constitution, and I would not do that. That was a great moment. And Nikki Haley, schooling Ramaswamy on his position on Ukraine, she said, You are choosing a murderer over a pro American country. Those were some actually. Very, very inspiring and good moments. So what was your sense?
3: Well, those were good moments. My take on the individual candidates on the stage uh, is a little different. And this has to do with subtle gradations between our assessments of different eras. You had kind of every iteration of Republicans since Reagan up there represented. And I tended to be most sympathetic to those who hearkened back to the Reagan era. Pence, I mean, yes, he did what he needed to on January 6th, and we should all be grateful to him for that. I liked the lines that you highlighted where he really pushed that in a forceful way much of Pence last night I really disliked quite intensely and that uh speaks to one of the reasons why I broke from the Republican Party around 2002 to 4 Right tell um, us what were those Well I, I just the the sanctimonious way in which he invokes his faith I know. Uh, in a way That's in a way pretty. that is just and I'm not averse to civil religion and right, speaking right, right. in terms of a kind of collective lowest common denominator, mere orthodoxy of Judeo-Christian faith that then gets mixed with elements of American history, that's all part of politics, and, and it's part of who Americans are. That's fine and totally
0: okay. Yeah, there's a Lincoln-esque way to do it, and then there's a cheap and tawdry way to do
3: it. Well, a cheap and tawdry and also very evangelical Protestant. Like, I'm going to tell you here about my personal turn to Jesus Christ, my personal Lord and Savior. There's a a kind of uh, off-putting character to that. I'm sure he's making his play for those Iowa caucus goers that might have served George W. Bush well in the early 2000s. I'm less convinced that it will now, where I think a lot of evangelical faith has so blended with adoration for Donald Trump, that it sort of gets invoked in a different idiom. So I wasn't very fond of that. I agree with what everyone has said about Nikki Haley. I think she did remarkably well. I was sort of stunned to come out of this event with my opinion of her sort of rocketing skyward. I've never been a huge fan of Nikki Haley because she also is kind of a Bush era Republican but I think she had a number of moments, including the one you mentioned in talking about foreign policy with Ramaswamy and just thinking on her feet, you know, we talked and highlighted on the podcast a few weeks ago about her stance on abortion and praised mm-hmm. it. And I think she she did even better in a much broader forum to really just come right out and be like, you know what, I'm pro-life. I'm in favor of pretty strong restrictions on this, but this must be a state issue. There should not be a, a federal ban on this. Tim Scott, he was the mirror image in South Carolina. If Nikki Haley sort of blew me away by how well she did, I was genuinely surprised at how lacking in energy and cogency he seemed to be. It was almost as if he was in a time delay like he wasn't actually on the stage with everyone else and was hearing the transcript through an earpiece two seconds behind everybody else he sort of paused a lot and um so i, I guess in the south carolina primary uh i would say uh, haley's now the person to beat and scott might be on his way out that's sort of way i see it last point I think probably more than anyone on this podcast, uh, I think that Ramaswamy really is going to see a big boost out of here. I certainly share everybody on this podcast disgust for the man. I wouldn't vote for him for all the money in the world. I can't stand where he comes down on anything. I find his demeanor very off-putting. But as Walter Olson and Bill Galston uh, have already indicated, He really is the Trumpian on that stage, and he masters it in a kind of instinctual way. And I don't mean to say he's authentic, because I think most of it is BS. We're living in a springtime for demagogues, my friends, and Ramaswamy is the best of the demagogues on that stage. And poor Ron DeSantis, he sure does try, but he doesn't have the knack for it that a Vivek does. And I think we're going to see him be up probably in the teens in the next week because of this, but in all the debates we've had for all these months about like, Will DeSantis be the guy who's there waiting in the wings in case Trump collapses and then he can step in in his place? I think Ramaswamy is in that position after this. And is that pretty scary about uh, the future? You bet it is. But in a way, that's not a new thing for me to be saying. I really do think he has his finger on the pulse of the party more than anybody
0: else. Linda, some people have said, look, the purpose of this Trumpless debate, there were two things to come out of it. One was to see whether there was some sort of anti-Trump candidate who could get traction, or let's say non-Trump candidate who could get traction. So apparently the donors were eagerly eyeing the exits of, you know, about Ron DeSantis and looking for an alternative. So I'm wondering if you think that Nikki Haley might see a nice boost, at least in her fundraising after this, because DeSantis did, in my judgment, very badly. I thought he does not come across well. He seems like an automaton, but with a weird look in his eye. I don't know. He's not a normal person. And I think that came across I don't know what you think. I'd be curious. (laughs) He's definitely not a normal person. Oh, Mona.
4: I mean, my husband was practically on the floor laughing because I was doing Ron DeSantis uh, imitations (laughs) after the debate, facial imitations, because he had this, you know, he has this weird frown on his face. He's got these two deep creases of, in between his eyebrows, and he's always looking like he's so angry, and yet his voice is very whiny, so it doesn't quite come across mm. uh, you know, in a forceful way. But then at the end of one of these little tirades, he put this weird smile on his face. And you could just see that somebody had spent time, Ron, you have to smile more. Maybe it was his <laughs> wife. You got to smile more. You're not appealing if you don't smile. But it was Exactly what you said. It was weird. Look, I actually find Ramaswamy, who, by the way, I have redubbed Vivek Ramasmarmi because he is smarmy. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. In the worst possible way. I find him a little scary. I think he'll see a pretty substantial bump because of his energy. Look, the Republican Party isn't, or at least the Republican base, primary voters, is a reality TV base now. These are not, you know, the neocons and intellectuals and even the, you know, some of the old Barry Goldwaterite Republicans of our youth. It's a different group of people. And what they always found appealing about Donald Trump was what they considered his star quality and his entertainment value. And Ramaswamy is entertaining. I mean, he's up there. He's animated. He's got energy. He speaks a mile a minute, uh, never really says much of anything except throwing out some outrageous things. But I think that he's going to have the biggest bump. In terms of Nikki Haley, I've been hard on Nikki Haley on this program. Uh, I think that she has come across as trying to have it both ways with respect Mm -hmm. to Trump, but she did herself some good. And although I would not have liked to see her raise her hand that she's willing to put a convicted felon, isn't this the Republican Party, by the way, that wants to take away the vote? from convicted felons. They don't want people to vote. Oh, but you could be a president. Convicted felon. Yeah. But they're
0: tough on crime. Yeah.
4: Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. I I forgot. Anyway, but I thought she did very well. Now, first of all, I think she's made a, a lot about her role as governor of South Carolina. And you had you know, several governors up there uh, vying for each other. And that has been traditionally one of the place you look for for presidents because they have executive leadership. But what she displayed in her debate with Ramaswamy, the sort of back and forth, was her credentials as a UN ambassador and her more sophisticated understanding of foreign policy. But, you know, One thing I would like to say, I don't think anybody else has focused on this, and that is how tough it is for a woman in that kind of uh, debate to be able to keep attention, to be able to continue to talk and not to be shut up by Ramaswamy, who talked over her and over her. She did get a little in the scolding there with her finger, as did he, but she never got shrill. She's learned the technique. Don't raise your voice. If you're a woman, you know, uh, raise it an octave higher because that's not attractive and it's not commanding, but she managed to hold her own. And I think that's going to be appealing to women. I think that, you know, the suburban woman vote out there for Nikki Haley is there. And I think she did herself a world of good talking about not demonizing women, not ever suggesting that women be punished for having an abortion. So she may come out of this. I think she'll get a boost in funders uh, because I think DeSantis is going to have
0: lost support in the debate. But the one that I'm worried about is Ramaswamy. Yeah, I just want to underline what you said about her performance just in general but also for a woman because I had the exact same reaction. It is so difficult when you're the only woman and you're in a potential shouting match or raised voices with men because men tend to have louder voices and it is difficult to be heard when somebody is trying to overpower you like that and they're and they're male. And so I think both you and I have had experience with this. We've had a little experience with that. <laughs> we have, you know. And so for us, it's like yes. And I agree with you that that will appeal to a lot of you know professional women who, or, or even non-professionals who have been in that situation. I thought she handled herself incredibly well. She really maintained command. She seemed to be the adult, and I thought she really gutted Ramaswamy and, and did it all with poise and maintaining her dignity. God bless her. I thought that was a Really great, great moment and you know on another planet in Earth 2.0, <laughs> she'd be rising in the polls and Republicans would look at each other and say, her, we want her. let's put her up against Joe Biden and we'd win, but that's not the world we live in. Sadly, Mona, I may just add that the part of the problem is
4: that where she did the best on the Ukraine issue, the Republican Party is not there anymore.
0: I know. That's why I said it's Earth 2.0. That's right. And, you know, who knows? She may not get any bump. We'll see. Okay, one more thing before we end this topic. And that is I'm going to turn to you, Wally Olson, on the topic that has been getting a lot of attention this week a uh, University of Pennsylvania Law Review article by two Federalist Society law professors, uh, William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson where they argue that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment remains valid and good law. Of course it is. It's part of the Constitution. But they say it gives secretaries of state in every state the option of declining to put Donald Trump's name on the ballot because he had previously taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection. Do you have a view on this?
2: Do I ever? (laughs) No, in all seriousness, I have a somewhat middle of the road and equivocal view, but I have read the entire article and I have been influenced by the article because before I looked at it, I had been among those who had been somewhat dismissive of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for our own circumstances and had thought, you know, it's going to be a blind ally. You know, people are going to be disappointed in some cases when it doesn't work out. Well, Bud's and and Paulson's article is very well put together. It is argued very carefully. They are very well-respected conservative law professors associated with the Federalist Society. And they do a, really, it's a tour de force, a magnificent job. It doesn't mean necessarily, I think, that their view is going to prevail on the courts. But a couple of quick points about that. First, I had always been aware that there had been a ruling, not by the Supreme Court, but by a panel that included Salmon Chase, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, basically taking the other side, saying, uh, we're going to interpret this uh, not to be self-executing, as lawyers put it, but requiring a finding by a court or Congress or someone that someone was an insurrectionist. We're not going to leave it in a situation where each new challenge might have to relitigate the question of whether person X or person Y was engaged in insurrection or not. And they uh, argue, I think, very persuasively that Chase was probably wrong. On the other hand, Precedent is precedent. And we know that the Supreme Court regularly agrees to live with old cases that it might agree were not uh, rightly decided. So that's point number one. Point number two, and then I will let others have the floor if you like, is on the one hand, a vision of chaos and anarchy breaks out in which every secretary of state and perhaps down to a more granular level, you know, county election boards could be refusing to let him on the ballot, could be Uh, refusing to tabulate votes as invalid. Uh, This could be happening, as indeed it did happen, in challenges to Representatives Madison Cawthorn and and, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. More on that in a moment. Let me say, somewhat reassuringly, all those things are going to get appealed very quickly if they have any success and go right up to the Supreme Court. Uh, It's crucial for the country, but it will also probably happen, that if this gets any traction, it is going to be resolved. And probably, I hope, early by the Supreme Court so that we don't have to go through uncertainty about whether or not it applies to Trump. Now, I mentioned that this was used against Cawthorne and Green. Green prevailed because on a factual basis, it was ruled that she was not an insurrectionist. She might have sympathized. She didn't take enough actions. Cawthorne's case wound up being mooted, even though the last ruling, I believe, was against him on the grounds that he got defeated in the primary, so there was no longer a practical question. So the courts did not resolve it in that last round.
0: Mm, interesting. All right. Does anybody else on the panel have a view on this, or just a question? Or
3: well, I do. Okay, Dave. Uh, I mean, I, I've written on this this week. Um, I have no informed opinion about the legal side of it. Um, I completely defer to Walter Olson and other experts who are lawyers and know this stuff far better than I do. But I think, as a political question, I think this cannot possibly be the way our Trump problem gets resolved. Uh, It may be the case that in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War with the Confederacy, a defeated insurrectionary movement within the country with hundreds of thousands of deaths and a surrender in hand that the victorious union had the authority to say, that unilaterally if you want to vote for these insurrectionists to office you are not allowed to do it that's what happens in a war when one side surrenders to the other that is not at all the relationship between the democratic party and the republican party in our time and the sad fact is that if this starts to unfold it is going to be democratic states Democratic secretaries of states arguing one side against Republican states and Republican lawyers and uh, members of the Republican Party on the other side. And ultimately, it will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. And I would bet quite a bit of money that it will probably end up that it will not fly and it will be either a six to three or a a five to four decision with the conservatives siding the way you would predict them to. And in the end, then, maybe it won't matter. But I do think people need to be be clear about what we mean by the rule of law. The rule of law is us as a political community coming to an overwhelming bipartisan consensus that certain rules are valid and will be enforced. And the sad, dangerous fact about our political moment is that the Republicans have succeeded in sort of creating their own alternative legal, moral, and political universe in which they no longer agree with the rest of the country about what any of this means and what the standard should be. And so inevitably, it ends up being not an overwhelming bipartisan consensus that these are the rules and Trump has violated, therefore he cannot serve in office again as president. I think it inevitably will end up seeming like, oh, a bunch of Democrats are getting together and saying that the Republican portion of the country are not permitted to want the person they want to be president. And I don't think that's a viable political path forward. So I I do hope that this goes nowhere and that Trump, if he is indeed the nominee, simply loses by the greatest possible margin in the vote.
0: Of course, the the other possible interpretation in terms of respect for the rule of law is that, you know, Democrats will say, well, hold on. I mean, what you're saying then is that Republicans can flout the law and get away with it because we're too intimidated by their threat to say this is all political. So there's that too. Okay, Linda.
4: Yeah, I was just gonna say, I don't disagree with Damon in terms of the politics of this issue and the way it would be incredibly divisive. I do think that's right. I think Republicans would scream bloody murder if Democratic secretaries of state attempted to remove Donald Trump. And that, of course, is what it's going to take. It's going to take a state official refusing to put Donald Trump's name on the ballot. But let's not think about this as some kind of punishment for Trump's behavior. There are qualifications to be President of the United States. You know, when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California and everybody loved him, people were saying, oh, gee, it's really too bad he wasn't born in the United States so that he could run for president. Nobody suggested, you know, that that was somehow a punishment. It was a qualification. Uh, Similarly, the age qualification is one of the qualifications. And what they did in the 14th Amendment in that debate, and I've spent a lot of time studying the 14th Amendment because of its role in terms of the race issue and how it's played out, and in terms of the citizenship issue, the natural-born citizen. So I've read the debates on the 14th Amendment. And I think this was not so much a punishment to those who had been involved in the Civil War. After all, it wasn't everyone. It was only those who had taken a previous oath to the Constitution and then had flouted that oath And more than just flouting it, they had actually engaged in insurrection or given aid and comfort to insurrectionists. And I also am not that sure that you'd see the kind of result at the Supreme Court if it in fact is tested in the courts, as Damon predicts. Because, you know, yeah, there may be some partisan leanings. Obviously, the majority, now the sort of supermajority of, of the court were pointed by uh, Republican presidents. But surely somebody like a John Roberts would like nothing more than the Republican Party to be rid of Donald Trump. And, you know, I can see even Neil Gorsuch or even Amy Coney Barrett, who was nominated by Trump, going along with the plain Language of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and the intent of those who framed the amendment in the post Civil War years. So that's my piece.
0: Wally, do you have any comments on what's been said?
2: Yeah, I agree with virtually everything that Damon and Linda have said, but I will get back to the same question of, uh, assuming it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, what's likely to happen? And my own guess is that, and, and the phrase that I always think of is Nino Scalia's, which is that he said that he was an originalist, but that he was a faint-hearted originalist. And it meant that even though some old decisions were incorrectly decided, you can't just pull down the pillars of the temple every time you see an old intellectual mistake. And he wasn't going to do that. Now, the court is not all that divided. Neil Gorsuch is the justice, above all, who doesn't believe in being faint-hearted. If he reads an old Indian treaty as giving a third of Oklahoma to the Indians, you know, by golly, he's going to give it to them. But to some extent, all the other eight are faint-hearted, And for the reasons Damon said about the political tumult, the feeling that much of the population, including many Democrats, that, that Democratic choice Was being limited by this, I would actually be kind of surprised if the disqualification side got as many as three votes on the Supreme Court.
0: Next topic is Hunter Biden, because as former President Trump's legal difficulties pile up, the Democrats have increased their attention on Biden and on his corruption. And we saw recently that the Plea deal fell apart after the judge in the case scrutinized it and realized that there was not, in fact, a meeting of minds. And now there is a lot of sturm and drang about Biden and about the so-called Biden crime family. The Republicans are saying that uh, they may start impeachment proceedings against President Biden. So I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. Do you have a sense that this? Issue is really dogging the president and a sense of whether he should be taking it more seriously, whether he should be doing something different. I'll just say one more thing, and that is that some people have said that he should distance himself from his son. And I find that just psychologically kind of hard. But what what
1: do you think? Alas, it is dogging him. And I'm afraid that he's brought it on himself. Let's stipulate, as the lawyers would say to the proposition that he himself didn't make a dime out of any of these transactions. He must've known what he was doing. However, he must've known what Hunter was doing. You mean, no, no, he must've known what he himself was doing in support of his son. Okay. Right. That in effect, he was cooperating with Hunter to allow The brand (laughs) to Mm -hmm. quote a number of people involved in this to be an effective financial force for his son. And if he didn't know that, he should have known that because he is plenty experienced enough to know, you know, where the line is. And so I don't think he should have been on any of those telephone calls. You know, the question of money flowing into his bank account is one thing, but the question of, you know, allowing himself to be used by his son for the purposes that he was used for, I think creates an optical question, even if it doesn't create a legal question. It is, I think, a misuse of the powers of the office that he held at the time. And I say this as a Democrat who is going to vote for Joe Biden's re-election, but it really doesn't look good. And it allows insinuations of moral equivalence to enter the political discourse in a way that's distinctly unhelpful, not only politically, but also civically. And I am not suggesting for all the psychological reasons that you've already invoked, that that the president, quote-unquote, distance himself from his son. This is not the kind of father who's ever going to do that. But for God's sake, you don't have to invite him to a state dinner just days after all of this to be technical. Mishagas has unfolded. And if the reports out of the White House are correct, that this is one of the few issues where no aid no matter how senior can open a conversation with the president you know a politically important conversation then i don't think this problem is going to go away and it is not going to be helpful politically or civically
0: okay wally Olson, i'm going to play hunter biden advocate (laughs) here this is what some people are saying look Hunter is sleazy and he, you know, had a daughter that he wasn't supporting for a long time and he's a drug addict, He engages in kind of shady influence peddling, but they say the crimes that have so far been identified are incredibly trivial. Things like failure to pay taxes, which, you know, thousands upon thousands of Americans do every year and it's usually taken care of administratively, not through the criminal process and the lying on a form to purchase a handgun, not admitting that he was under the influence of drugs at the time, again, usually no prison sentence, despite Chris Christie saying during the debate that he would give him a 10-year term for that offense. That's unheard of. That was ridiculous. So they say, look, actually, there is a there is a double standard. Hunter is being treated more harshly than the average defendant just because he's the son
2: of the president. What's your view? I have taken the view all along that most people are able to keep in perspective that a president might have a family member who has gone to the bad and committed crimes and will not, for that reason alone, if that's all there is to it, will not blame the president or other main personality. But I agree with Bill that it has gone beyond just being unlucky in what happened to his son. And as Bill mentioned, the presence on phone calls, the decisions to do things like invite to state dinners, bad enough. I would add two more things. And to me, they represent smoke that is not just seeping out, but kind of billowing out at this point. First, the Republicans have made hay, I think rightly, out of the fact that Biden's position has changed and that connections to Hunter Biden's business that he denied. He eventually admitted, oh, well, actually, yes, I may have been there. Yes, I may have been on a phone call. Okay, well, so we've caught him seemingly being evasive about some of the issues at the center of it. The thing that I can't get over is something different. And again, I find the, the defense of the official you know, democratic message machine to be very inadequate on this. As I understand it, and maybe someone will correct me if I'm wrong, the investigations found that various miscellaneous Biden family members who are not neither Hunter nor Joe, have been getting all this money in from foreign sources. And a Democratic response to I heard about it is, well, there's no proof of a quid pro quo. Well, you know, there's no proof of a quid pro quo in part because some of these are just kids. Now, why are kids in the Biden family getting large foreign payments? You know, maybe it had nothing to do with any decision Joe made, but isn't that irregular? How would even Hunter necessarily have brought it about? Naturally, people wonder if it's something where uh, this, you know, a kid couldn't have a consultancy. A kid is not going to be on on corporate boards if the Republicans are right that there are these money flows, then at least we should get an explanation.
0: Yeah, Linda, I feel a little bit the way I did when I found out that right around the time that we discovered, you know, the the huge scandal about Trump's mishandling of classified documents, we find out that Biden had kept some classified documents in a couple of different locations also. Now, of course, there are huge differences, right, between Trump's very willful and uh, obstructive behavior and the nature of the classified materials and all of that, and Biden's apparent somewhat careless bad handling of classified matters. But still, the very fact that it made the news that Biden also had had these things in his garage – it does muddy the waters, right? And similarly here, I mean, you know, this, this Hunter Biden thing does give the Republicans an opportunity to say, well, you know, Trump may have been corrupt, but everybody does it. Yep. That's exactly
4: what they'll say. And by the way, you know, I feel very uh, strongly about this. I think Hunter Biden should go to jail, not for a long time, but I think what he did was absolutely wrong. I mean, you know, not paying taxes. We're talking about millions of dollars that he owed. The fact that he was a crack addict and wasn't exactly doing his paperwork is in some ways irrelevant. I think if Hunter Biden loved his father, he would take the correct fall for his actions. And there would have been a plea deal, which it had given him some time in federal prison, for what he did. I mean, maybe others will disagree with me, maybe that's too strong, but I feel strongly about that. And I speak as the granddaughter of a man who went to federal prison for 11 and a half years for bootlegging and whose wife and children were deprived of their home because, of course, there was tax evasion. The feds came in and took away the property of my grandfather during prohibition. So you know, people pay for their crimes by doing time. And I think he is despicable. I'm sorry. This man got millions of dollars from foreign entities, but it wouldn't matter if it was foreign or domestic entities. He did not do anything to deserve that money. These were a way of him trying to sell the family brand influence peddling, and whether or not Joe Biden accommodated them. I don't think he did, because I think the actions he took in Ukraine were in fact the proper action in firing a corrupt uh, prosecutor, who by the way, was not doing a good job investigating Burisma, the company that uh, paid Hunter Biden. But I don't know, you know if there could be a family intervention, but somebody ought to sit Hunter Biden down and say, knock it off. You've lived high on the horse on your family's names. You've disgraced your family in multiple ways. It's time to pay back a little. He would help Joe Biden if he got a plea deal, which included at least some time for the crimes that he committed.
0: Damon, having previously been devil's advocate, I'm going to switch sides now and point out that one of the things that Hunter Biden has done quite recently, is his lawyers threatened during the course of these negotiations with the Justice Department that if the Justice Department went forward with charges, that they would call the president to testify in the trial and that this would be a national security disaster or something along those lines. Basically, Hunter allowed his lawyers to threaten his father Yeah. The whole
3: thing is extremely depressing to me because maybe I'm being naive here. It's entirely possible, but my instincts tell me Joe Biden did not mean to do anything wrong here. This was in the period where Beau Biden died of cancer. Uh, He was shaken. He wants to keep up ties with his other son who has had such a kind of rocky, difficult life. And so what he sets up is kind of a a situation where, hey, you want to use the fact that you're my son to like make a bunch of money overseas? all right, I'll, I'll, you know, stroll into the room when I know you're on the phone with that person and and say, hey, kid, how you doing? So that you can then say, hey, yeah, there's my dad. See, we talk all the time. It's such a strange kind of familial corruption, where unless they can show the Joe Biden personally received payments and or that there was some policy quid pro quo. That's what I mean when I say naive. I don't believe that we will find either of those things, which means that in the context of the, say, post-2016 American political scene at the highest levels, there is something a little obscene about even having to talk about this, because in comparison to the kind of corruption that we saw throughout the entire Trump administration, and then, of course, the end of the Trump administration, and since with corruption bleeding on into like incitement and self-coup attempts and all kinds of other egregious lies and attempts to subvert the Constitution and other things, this seems so infuriatingly trivial that I think a lot of Democrats are sort of like, oh, get out of here, go to hell. Like compared to Trump, how can you even say the name Hunter Biden? The problem is that in addition to what uh, Hunter Biden's uh, lawyers have been willing to do is that, you know, all of us have said versions of this, but I want to put a finer point on it even When Trump ran for president in 2016 as a populist in that right-wing cultural populist way where the entire thing is about pointing to an entrenched establishment and impugning its integrity and saying that you will fix the problem personally as the outsider, that's the, the shtick, he did not say... I am an angel. I am a saint. Put me in charge and I will do it better. That is so important that he did not say that. What he said was, I am part of these people. He insinuated at least, I know they're corrupt because I'm with them. I'm corrupt too. Which is exactly, I think, what is behind things like this unbelievable, outrageous CBS, UGov poll that came out this week that showed that if you ask uh, Trump voters, who do you trust? Religious leaders, 42% say yes. Do, do you trust conservative media figures, 56%. Friends and family, 63%. And Donald Trump, 71%. Why is that obscene figure the reality on the right these days? In some way, it's that they take that position that I outlined as honest, as a kind of confession that like we can trust Trump because he's not portraying himself as better than the sleaze all around. And that is that is how he was able to narrowly defeat Hillary Clinton, by turning her into crooked Hillary. So yeah, you think I'm corrupt, but look, she's just as bad. You hate me. Okay, fine. But you should hate her too. And so her negatives are pretty much the same as his. Trump's only hope of winning while under indictment in four separate cases and four jurisdictions with 91 counts is if he can somehow convince a lot of Americans, yeah, they think they're in a position to judge me, but they're not. They do it too. If they were hiding this, what else are they hiding? that's the dynamic and the thing that is so depressing and infuriating is that this stupid comparatively trivial corruption that probably grew out of Joe Biden's admirable desire to stay close to and help his you know maladjusted son uh, with with all of his drug abuse and other problems is now going to be hanging around his neck weighing him down and I don't trust You know, the judgment of him to not allow his own staff to talk to him about it is pretty bad. But then there's also, you know, his cognitive decline. And how is he going to handle it on a debate stage with Donald Trump when he's asked questions about Hunter and Trump is coming at him, attacking Hunter? I think it was a little shaky last time. I think it's going to be worse this time. So I am worried. I'm worried.
0: All right. In the interests of completeness, let me just observe that it's been alleged that Joe Biden himself has suddenly become wealthy. And the question is, you know, is it because of corrupt foreign dealings? So I think it is worth noting that his net worth as recently as 2009 was listed as something like $30,000. And that was after a career in the U.S. Senate. And then after his vice presidency, he made his money – most of it from book deals and speaking engagements and Biden's very well remunerated post at the University of Pennsylvania as a professor at the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, where he received a salary of $540,000. So that's not too bad, not too shabby. But in any event, that's worth noting that he seems to have come by his money that he now has, honestly, though, of course, we can't be positive that there isn't anything under the table. Second thing to say, I think, in the interest of completeness is that, that this is the president's son who has never held a government post and is accused of influence peddling, which is not pretty, but which is not remotely on a par with what Trump was accused of. And finally, I think it's worth noting that Biden, however poorly he may have handled this, he did not fire the special counsel who had been appointed by the Trump people to investigate Hunter, let him stay on. He did not denounce the investigation into Hunter Biden as a witch hunt. He didn't denounce the judges in the cases as so-called judges. He didn't say that this means the entire justice system is rigged and a plot against himself. So obviously it's a complicated and very uh, unpretty picture for president. Heading into a reelection campaign. All right, let us now turn to our final segment, highlight or lowlight
1: of the week, Bill Galston. Regrettably, this week has been a target rich environment for lowlights. I hardly know where to start, but of course, I must end quickly. So I'll just pick out a couple. One, which I don't think has been discussed enough is Ron DeSantis' pledge to invade Mexico on day one of his presidency. Sending American troops across the border into a foreign country without the consent of its government is, I think, the the strict legal definition of an invasion. So Ron DeSantis has threatened to invade Mexico on day one. Uh, Maybe it plays well with the base, but uh, it's pretty darned irresponsible in my book. And now for fun, number two, and I really don't mean to pick on the person I'm about to quote, uh, a veteran Republican political strategist by the name of Bob Heckman had this to say about the the political consequences of the Republican debate. And I quote, Ramaswamy probably gets a small bump, but I don't know how you get the nomination by insulting everyone in the room. Apparently Mr. Heckman slept through the entire 2016 Republican yes. primary, you know, where, where Donald Trump got the nomination by doing exactly that. Now, I don't expect Ramaswamy to get the nomination. But the only reason I don't expect him to get it is because Donald Trump is still there. Otherwise, he might
2: just. Right. Walter Elson. I'd like to point to a low light, which is kind of a deter and probably more minor in the greater scheme of things, but which I just found so symptomatic. And it's detailed in an article by Will Salatan in the the bulwark, uh, and it's about vaccines in the military you know vaccines came up a couple of times in the debate but a lot of us remember that there was a controversy about whether the military, as it has done with many other vaccines in many other circumstances, could require its members to take the COVID vaccine. It clearly has legal authority to do that. There were clearly issues of unit readiness and so forth. And so now you think, okay, the issue's basically in the past. They've discontinued the mandate. COVID landscape has changed. You've got a bunch of Republican senators threatening to hold up the national defense authorization bill. If they can't get a vote, a bill that has been introduced, not just to somehow back and, you know, mend the relationship between those who were insubordinate on this and, and may have been separated from the service or or in other ways penalized, but to give them back pay. And unless they can get the vote for the back pay, then they won't allow the defense bill to go forward. And my mind reels, I'm, you know, I spent much of my life writing about employment litigation. And as those who have been through it may be aware, back pay is this sort of special remedy with highly punitive over. Tones. Because someone has been not working for you for two years, uh, if you pay them back pay without getting any back work, you're just handing them over a large sum of sum of money. While the, you know they may have been earning a perfectly nice income somewhere else, it's basically something that is meant to rub your nose in it and and punish you for having been wrong rather than just right in a good faith way. And for them to do this about vaccines, for them to ignore both the readiness issues that were the underlying reason in the first place and also the readiness issues having to do with passing a necessary bill, it just confirms that the Republicans, or at least many of them, will play even the military and even national security for cheap culture war entertainment. That's what I have to say.
0: Yes. All right. Linda? Linda?
4: Well, we've had a lot of lowlights. I'm going to give a highlight. It's really good news, and it comes from south of the border. There were elections, actually, it was a runoff election in Guatemala uh, last weekend, and the winner of that election, he was running against the incumbent, Sandra Torres, who was the wife of another uh, Guatemalan president. But the winner is a center-left candidate whose name is Bernardo Arevalo and he is somebody who got 58% of the vote. Guatemala has not quite as bad as El Salvador, but in many respects like El Salvador has been, you know, a kleptocracy, a failed state. Obviously the failure of Guatemalan uh, government has led to the exodus of many Guatemalans and of course when they exit they move north and, and try to come to the United States, not always legally. So the fact that you've got now an anti-corruption crusader who is going to be president of Guatemala, somebody who you know had, almost no name recognition or anything else prior to getting involved in this race, and who managed to overcome all of the impediments to democracy put in place by the ruling party, is, I think, remarkable. I think it's very good news. And is good news, not just for Guatemala, but for the United States, because the way to help solve the problem we're having at our southern border is to have more stability in Central America and in Mexico, and having Guatemala be now governed by someone who might very well be able to turn things around there, I think is very good news for all of us.
0: And Linda, most of the people who are showing up at the southern border are from Central America right there right from Mexico
4: that that's right although the Mexicans have again started uh, to come in more recently the The uh, Lopez Obrador uh, government there is doing no favors to the Mexican people But we pay too little attention to this uh, in America. It really matters and it affects all of us I wish we'd pay more attention to
0: some of these trends Right. We also pay too little attention to our neighbor to the north. I mean, Canada, they have to have forest fires in order for us to even remember that uh, they exist. exist. (laughs) It's a great country, great neighbor. All right, Damon.
3: Uh, I'm going to uh, avoid any temptation to kind of uh, contribute to the uh, pervading mood of gloom by giving a highlight. It does require that I leave politics behind. This is a really lovely, long, moving essay by Jennifer Senior in The Atlantic titled The Ones We Sent Away – subtitled, I Thought My Mother Was an Only Child, I Was Wrong. It's a very much a personal essay, but one with a lot of resonances with broader questions of what humanity is and the role of disability in human life and how we treat those who are disabled. The basic rundown of the piece is Jennifer Sr.'s mother actually had a, a sister who had been sent away when she was a small child to an institution for people with severe mental disabilities and has lived her entire life in such facilities, in group homes. Only uh, years later, sort of started to be incorporated a little bit back into the family, though always at quite a great distance. And uh, one of the things that's so great about it, as an essay, uh, which is often the case with Jennifer Sr.'s uh, excellent work, Is just the very light touch, great sensitivity of Jennifer's writing in capturing the sadness of real human lives and the struggles that they have. I think you should read it with a box of tissues nearby. I challenge you to get through it with a dry eye, but it's in a good way and very much recommended to everyone.
0: Okay, thank you. Mine, alas, is also (laughs) a low light. The Heritage Foundation, which was. Founded to promote conservative ideals, and for decades stood strong for democracy, American leadership in the world, and other things. Though I didn't always like Heritage's work, but I never thought that they were dishonest or cheap. And unfortunately, this week, and now they have, in the era of Trump, they have completely pivoted as so many formerly honorable conservative organizations have done. And they put out a tweet this week that is just despicable, talking about contrasting images of Kiev, which they portray with people riding bicycles on a nice sunny day and out in cafes, with Maui, and chastising the Biden administration for giving more money to Kiev than to Maui, which is, of course, you know, I'm sure the numbers are wrong you know, that we've only begun to rebuild in Maui. But in any event, the notion, this kind of, you know, primitive us against them stuff, you know, don't send your money to those undeserving foreigners when there are people in this country. There are always needs in our own country, but we are either a great nation or we're not. And uh, what we are doing to preserve democracy and to help the Ukrainians fight off a brutal invasion is one of the better things that has happened in the world in in recent history and for the heritage foundation to scoff at it is really a come down and it's emblematic of what has happened to so many formerly honorable conservative organizations so shame on them and with that i would like to thank our guest Walter Olson and our panel as well as our producer Katie Cooper our sound engineer Jonathan Siri editor Aaron Keen and of course our wonderful listeners and we will return next week as every week